American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar. Thank you. All the way down from Boston. Um, if I, with, with a Yankee hat on. They, they don't scare me up there. Yeah. Um, the only rivalry is with the Mets, so we're fine. With it. Um, last night, I, last night I had a chance to go to um, a retirement party for Claude Mangum up at Fordham University in the African American Studies Department at Fordham University. Um, and I got to say a few words. I was um, one of the students there um, during his long career there, his 42-year career at Fordham. And one of the things I had mentioned was when I got to college as a freshman, that you know, I, I showed up to college wrong. Um, I was unprepared for college. And I had just gotten out of, um, I had just left Boys and Girls High in Bedford-Stuyvesant in a year that I think we had somewhere around a 23, certainly not higher than 25% graduation rate. And I walked onto a college campus as a first generation college student and just sort of stared. And <laughs> Claude Mangum grabbed me one day and took me into his office and just started giving me a lecture on what it meant to be in college. And uh, the, the story I told was longer than that, but it actually relates to what I'm gonna talk about today, which is related to a covenant with color. All these years after that project, there aren't many things that I would do differently in it. I, when I, you know, I don't often read it, fortunately. And um, when I do read it, I, you know, I read it with a sense of paranoia. Um, hoping that I don't see any glaring errors uh, that I now recognize. But the one thing, the one major thing I would do differently is actually in the story of education. And so that's what I'm actually going to talk about today, the education component of the PowerPoint, in part because when I wrote the, my dissertation, which became that book, I thought that educational segregation in New York, educational inequality in New York, was a consequence of neighborhood segregation which is kind of mechanically true, and that's sort of how I told the story. Um, in the North, the, so the story goes, we segregated neighborhoods. And the consequences of segregated neighborhoods were segregated parks, um, segregated transportation, segregated schools. Um, and so I largely kept to that script inside the manuscript, and so that educational inequality became a, an example of residential segregation and expression of the consequences of re residential segregation. Today I would tell that story differently. And I have been, I hope, trying to. So for the last several years I've been working on the question of education in American cities going all the way back to the colonial period. And so um, what I'll do is just try and give a sense of how I would actually rewrite that. Okay. In part, I would start the story with the contest around schools perhaps actually being the catalyst to residential segregation. In many ways actually being more important than residential segregation. More important I know is a kind of loose term or you know, um, bold claim. But what I mean by that is the struggle over schools actually predated the struggle over neighborhoods. And certainly predate, predated the fantastic body of law regulation, p 
policy that segregated big cities like New York in the middle of the 20th century, r roughly from the Great Depression through the 1970s. What does all that mean? Um, for me, what, it really, what we really are talking about is realities that manifested in the middle of the 20th century and how we actually start to historicize them and to explain them. And so now when I look back at this period, one of the things that becomes important to me is thinking about schools as separate from neighborhoods and putting schools into their own history, a history that speaks to the history of residential segregation or ghettoization, um, but isn't actually always dependent upon it. And I think that the tendency to make the story of schools dependent upon the story of neighborhoods actually is historically misleading. Why do I say that? All the way back in the 19th century, we had faced a kind of fundamental problem in the United States around public education. Um, we had a tense relationship to the idea of public schools. Um, Americans actually tend to have a tense relationship to the idea of public everything. You know, so public housing bothered us. You know, um, public health care bothers us. You know, public hospitals bother us from time to time. And public schools certainly bothered us. Um, one historian has pointed out that the rise of the public school was really actually dependent upon things that we tend not to think about anymore, and particularly the Civil War. We had launched public education before the war, even public high schools before the war. But what the war did was exposed a set of rather dramatic social problems that Americans were going to have to wrestle with in the aftermath of the Civil War in 1865. And they were regional, but they were actually related. Or in other words, in the South, what was the United States to do with more than four million formerly enslaved people who were going to be emancipated and moved somehow into the body politic? In the North, the contest, question, tension, struggles around the rise of a large Catholic immigrant population meant, in fact, that public policy needed to respond to social realities. In the West, the um, growth of an Asian immigrant population and the rise of a labor movement based upon the idea of excluding Asians permanently from the United States body politic. All of those questions were actually boiling in the aftermath of the Civil War. And as one scholar has pointed out, the way that we started to resolve them was by establishing or turning toward public education as a solution to political problems. Or one of the major justifications for public education became public education was the way to actually incorporate people into American society and to reduce ethnic, racial, political tension in order to create a more unified nation. The public school actually therefore emerges with some rather significant responsibilities. But the problem, of course, was what kind of public education were we agreeing upon? Um, and I, I, I can just point out as a historian who's been working on education for a while, um, this is not the first time we did this. You know, the, we often build schools to solve problems. And the idea that the school was a way to sort of solve or intervene in social tension was not a 19th century invention. But what is clear about the 19th century, especially the post-Civil War period, is that a much more vibrant commitment to public education begins to resonate across the United States. And the public school emerges as a kind of permanent part of, the, of American society and American culture. 
in other words, the public school and the struggle around the public school actually predates the sort of residential questions that tend to occupy us in 20th century urban history and that occupied me when I was writing my dissertation. The next part of that is, therefore, the question immediately emerged of what exactly was the purpose of the public school? What was it actually supposed to do? And how was it supposed to make this intervention into the civic affairs and social affairs of the United States? One of the things we actually had a really hard time agreeing upon was something actually quite simple. The, it's easy to build buildings, but what was the curriculum going to be? What were students at these schools supposed to learn? And what was it, what kind of education was going to take Irish Catholics in New York, formerly enslaved black people in the South, and turn them into, somehow miraculously, American citizens to the standard that, for instance, white Protestants living in the suburbs of New York would actually think acceptable? That, those questions are actually curricular questions. And the struggle of the curriculum began immediately. For many African Americans, it was certainly clear that they wanted access to a kind of education that would guarantee mobility and security in a world that was still hostile to their presence and in a nation that still saw their labor as, in proprietary terms, their ability to work as not just an individual asset but a social asset. And so we built some fantastic buildings throughout this period. I'm sorry, Boys High is actually missing for some reason. Um, it's, I, I'll blame Google. Um, why not? <laughs> they, they can afford to be blamed for a few things. Um, Wadley High School, and if you go around New York, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century, we built some extraordinary monuments to education. Um, I mean, these schools are absolutely gorgeous. You know, Boys High, the old Boys High in Bedford-Stuyvesant is a stunning building. Um, inside and outside. Um, and it was built as a monument to the city of Brooklyn. Um, Brooklyn actually advertised itself. When I do my history of New York class, I often point out that in many neighborhoods, the most obvious symbol of the presence of the government was actually the public school. And so public school architecture actually has a kind of logic to it. It was supposed to make noise in a neighborhood. Um, Boys High, for instance, especially in the 19th century, um, is actually probably the tallest building in central Brooklyn, rivaled only probably by a couple of churches. Okay. Um, it towered over everything else. It towered over the brownstone row houses when they came in, um, and it was the presence of the government. It actually represented the municipality. And this is girls, and you can see girls high, sort of towering over the brownstone row houses around it. It no longer actually has that presentation. The other buildings have gotten bigger, and bigger things have actually come along. And so residential segregation. Um, how would I tell that story now? The ghettoization of the black population in, in 20th century New York, 20th century Brooklyn, was one of the things that actually attracted me to this topic as a graduate student and led me to the dissertation and ultimately to the book project. I would tell that story a little bit differently now, and in particular, I would emphasize that what was happening in the public schools um, didn't really immediately depend upon what was happening in the neighborhoods. There was a disconnect in some ways between the public schools and the neighborhoods. The public schools were actually having a life of their own. At Girls High, as central Brooklyn is becoming increasingly non-white, 
as the white population is moving out of central Brooklyn, as public policy is pulling middle class and working class white people out of these old built up sections of New York City, um, like central Brooklyn and, and downtown, and drawing them into the newly developed sections of New York. Um, in, in other words, and I describe this in the book, what, what public policy is really doing is it's taking people who were renters and homeowners and turning them into mortgage holders. And one of the great successes of early 20th century policy is actually that. We sold whole new neighborhoods to many people who actually thought they were happy in their old neighborhoods. Um, the bankers sat down and looked at the Bronx, for instance, the Grand Concourse, and started counting all of those families who rented apartments and imagining how wonderful it would be if they actually had mortgages. Um, they would be so much more useful to banks if they were mortgage holders rather than renters. And so we actually shaped policy to draw them into the housing market and to turn them into private family homeowners. Um, one of the ways that we did that was actually by undermining the quality of the neighborhoods that they lived in. We started withdrawing resources from them. We made it harder to borrow and to lend. We put, as I described in the book, those neighborhoods under financial quarantine. And we forced the people who were living in them to make a rather difficult choice. They could ride out their financial future and a rather risky and scary financial future given the fact that their neighborhoods were now under financial quarantine and rapidly changing. Or they could sell and move into one of the newly developed neighborhoods, neighborhoods that were actually being sold under a promise of racial segregation and to some extent even class segregation. With those moves also came an even more striking segregation in public education. So the, the trends toward inequality in the public education system accelerate dramatically um, during the Great Depression and immediately after as public policy is actually now um, investing the government and putting the government as a major player in the segregation of the housing market. It's not the first time that we tried to do this. It was the first time that we did it with such stunning success. Long before the government got involved in the housing market, the 1930s, 1940s involvement that ends up segregating New York City and big cities across the United States, um, private industries had tried to do it. In Brooklyn, it was the Brooklyn Union Gas Company and Brooklyn Edison. They actually created their own maps in the early 20th century. They went neighborhood by neighborhood in Brooklyn and found every Negro, Jew, and Catholic living in Brooklyn mapped out where they lived and tried to actually influence lending and housing policy based upon these private maps. They didn't operate at a scale that made what they were doing particularly effective, but it actually became a model for the 1930s when the Great Depression created an incentive for the United States government and the state government to actually get involved in the housing market, to stop the mortgage crisis, to reverse the mortgage crisis, um, and the home ownership crisis. And so, and the model became the profitability of segregation. That segregated neighborhoods did multiple things. White families moving into the perimeter of Brooklyn, for instance, South Brooklyn, um, which became the sort of new white belt um, in the borough of Brooklyn, and the Long Island suburbs would actually pay a premium for racial segregation. Non-white people excluded from these new neighborhoods by virtue of the color of their skin 
would pay a premium to live in the old built-up neighborhoods that were now under financial quarantine. It's for that reason that Gilbert Osofsky, the urban historian, described Harlem as a profitable slum. And what he meant by that, um, looking at 20th century policy, was that by the middle to late, by the second half of the 20th century, um, African Americans living in Harlem were paying more per square foot than just about anywhere else in Manhattan because their housing choices were so artificially constrained. They actually had to pay exorbitantly high prices for declining housing. The same story was true in Brooklyn. The same story was true in the Bronx. You can write that story um, hundreds of times across the United States. Um, these are therefore FHA maps where the Federal Housing Administration actually went back and started looking for the non-white people living in Brooklyn and mapping their movement across time. Um, I'm going to jump back to that. And mapping their movement across time. And one of the things that they did, therefore, is they actually started setting housing and lending policy based upon these maps. And all of these areas represent certain concentrations of the black population, the Negro population in Brooklyn. And what that meant in Brooklyn is that the black people living down here in the South, in places where the government and policy makers increasingly saw these as the perfect places to develop new neighborhoods for white working class and middle class families, that these people were inconveniently located. They're actually standing in the way of that plan. So public policy also had to get rid of them. Um, in New York, we generally do that using slum clearance. The slum clearance law actually gives the local government finally the authority to do two things that I describe in the book that become critical to residential segregation. The mortgage policy through the Federal Housing Administration and the Homeowners Loan Corporation gives us the ability to whiten neighborhoods. In other words, to put some neighborhoods under financial quarantine, North Brooklyn, and actually open access to credit, um, create sort of particularly attractive credit markets in other neighborhoods to move the white population. So we can whiten neighborhoods at will. And what slum clearance does is allows us to also darken neighborhoods at will. Um, slum clearance allows us to uproot the non-white population that was actually living in these areas that were now designated for white people. In Chicago and New York and a lot of big cities, new, um, slum clearance therefore gets, I'm sorry, um, sarcastically called Negro removal because that's actually what the policy is effectively being used to do. By the 1950s and 1960s, therefore, we have an increasingly segregated um, residential system. And there's some real educational consequences to this. In the big suburban towns on Long Island, it means that one of the ways that we're attracting people into the suburbs is by promising them not only segregated neighborhoods, and not only are they paying a premium for um, racial segregation in these suburban communities. They're also, we're also now promising them segregated school systems. Well into the 1970s, for instance, the New York Times published, I don't know if anyone's ever seen it, they used to, they used to publish a um, guide to the housing market so that you actually could get a New York Times guide to the housing market. And, and for greater New York, you could look at the suburbs, you could look at the makeup of every neighborhood, you could look at the um, school system, and one of the most important pieces of information that those guides included was the racial makeup of the school systems, including the Jewish and Catholic populations in those schools. Um, the elite suburban towns of Long Island, therefore, 
often advertise themselves by the lack of Jewish students in their public school system. And the almost complete exclusion of non-white students became a major selling point for housing. So that in many ways, schools didn't follow residential policy. Schools actually led residential policy. Um, it was actually the school system that we were selling throughout. And we therefore created markedly different educational experiences across the United States. I'm going to jump through some of these. Um, they do roughly the same thing. These are different versions of FHA, state, and um, other federal maps that detailed the location of non-white people living in New York. It means, in fact, that you get the elite schools with sort of fantastic, almost university-like um, physical plants and the declining urban schools. Um, this map I recreate in the book in black and white. Um, and it, it's the HOLC, the Home Loan Corporation, redlining that for Brooklyn. Um, and the areas that are in that reddish pink color are the areas that are given the D grade. And the D grade from HOLC means the neighborhood is dangerous and lending there is actually restricted. Okay. Um, <coughs> the only A grade neighborhood in all of Brooklyn is actually here, Bay Ridge, on the um, west coast. And the reason that Bay Ridge gets that rating has really nothing to do with the physicality of Bay Ridge. It has to do with the fact that the bankers and the realtors had made major investments in housing there. And they wanted to make sure that people had full access to credit to buy the housing that they were building and to um, buy the condos, that, all that stuff that they were building actually needed to be sold. If you look up at the top, Brooklyn Heights only gets a B rating because there was no money to be made in Brooklyn Heights. It was already built up. And so it's sort of a stunning indictment of the, probably you know, one of the nicest neighborhoods in New York. I'm sorry. So what, what time period is this now? This is actually the 1930s into the 1940s, late 30s oh, really? into the 40s. So Flatbush, I mean, yeah. other neighbors, you would, I would assume Midwood, would, that would be viable neighborhoods? They were, the, they um, actually, this is, if you see that long strip in yellow going this way, yeah. right in the middle, that's Crown Heights. Crown Heights gets a C rating, meaning cautious. You have to, it's still restricted lending. And the reason it has a C rating is that the Jewish population is too large. HOLC objects to the size of the Jewish population. Same on, in Flatbush. Yeah, too. the same in Flatbush. You know, as you come down into Midwood and Flatland, over here on the east in East New York and Brownsville, the size of the Jewish population was the reason for the D rating. But more important than that, HOLC was really offended in East New York and Brownsville because the Jewish population in Brownsville, East New York, had actually organized to fight for housing for low-income black people living in the neighborhood. That they're actually getting along really bothered HOLC, so they slapped them with a D rating. Brownsville also got an additional slap for um, some of the tenants in one of the buildings had organized a rent strike, which bankers immediately got offended by. And so uh, this, this is what shaped public policy, though. I mean, if you, you know, these D ratings actually matter. Because what they mean is for white families living in D rated areas, and that big red box right up in the middle with the little yellow dot in the middle, mm -hmm. that's Bedford Stuyvesant. Right. Bed Stuy, in the beginning of the 1930s, is still more than 90% white. By, the 19, by 1960, it's going to have an overwhelming black majority. What it means in Bedford-Stuyvesant is that white families are facing financial quarantine. They're going to be punished every year that they, have, that they remain in that neighborhood. 
And so rationally, they need to get out and relatively quickly. It also means that in these southern neighborhoods that become increasingly white and ethnic by the 1960s and 1970s, um, those neighborhoods now have to police the real estate market. There's an incentive to police real estate to make sure that non-white people don't purchase. Because now white people get punished for having non-white neighbors in public policy. The value of your house, um, the value of the single biggest investment that you'll have um, in, for the 20th century middle class is actually affected by the color of your neighbor's skin. And it's one of the reasons why in Canarsie by the 1970s in um, Flatlands you're actually having that series of fire bombings and violence around realtors showing houses to non-white people. Right? By Canars in Canarsie by the 70s, not only do they bomb the house, they bomb the realtor's office as a punishment um, for a violation of that sort of racial code. But Professor, when you say they punish them, a home is only worth what someone will pay for it. Right. And the price of a home is determined by the people bidding for it or the praiser who comes and says we're going to but it's also it, no. It's also affected by your access to credit, the interest rates that you would pay um, so for that house. And, and yeah, and and the right. You're actually going to pay a premium now to live. So it's actually more expensive to borrow in these downgraded neighborhoods. And so the punishment is actually immediate and financial. It also means that home. Remember, it affects home improvement too, whether or not you can borrow for instance, to improve your house, um, falls under a similar set of policy by this period. And so most of the decisions that you'll make about the long-term value of your house are going to be affected now by the racial makeup of your neighborhood. becomes a critical factor. And the racial makeup of your neighborhood, one of the easiest ways to measure the reality of that makeup is the racial makeup of the local schools. And so if your local schools have a population, for instance, that's 50% non-white, that actually has an immediate effect on the value of your house. Does that make sense? Um, and so you end up with, and we'll see this in just a moment, this first one is actually the Brooklyn schools. One of the immediate consequences of this train of policy is an extraordinary segregation in the New York City school system. In the South Brooklyn schools like New Utrecht, what you have are white people, white families, attempting to push their kids into heavily overcrowded schools, schools that are operating at 145% of capacity, for instance, in the case of New Utrecht, right? Because in fact, and to get them out of integrated schools and schools that have too large a non-white population, because another consequence of this train of policy is going to be diminishing investments in these, over, these largely non-white schools. Right? Boys and Girls High, for instance, Boys High, I'm sorry, um, Boys and Girls doesn't exist yet. Boys High will be the most segregated school in New York by the 1970s. Um, segregated to a point, in fact, that the New York City Board of Education gives up all hope of integrating Boys High or Girls High by the mid-1960s. And the new policy becomes to try and find a new site for a new school on one of the borders between the black and white population to attract um, students in an integrated fashion. But by the time they agree to that policy, the idea of an integrated high school in New York um, has been so sort of um, degra degraded that there's very little public interest in actually having a new school built in these boundary areas. Remember, those boundary areas are actually pretty violent. 
Um, if you remember the 1970s or if you go back to the newspapers in the 1970s, that walk between, I think it's the L train down to Canarsie High School, is actually one of the most dangerous walks in New York. Yeah, we've, we've got police officers actually along that street during the hours where school lets in and out in order to protect students who are coming from outside the neighborhood. And this is, it's a little harder to see, but what all this is, is this is all of the school districts on Long Island. And what I put here are the places where the non-white population are actually um, located. And virtually all the non-white students on Long Island are actually in eight of something like 56 school districts by the early 1970s. So that not only are we segregating the urban school system, we also have <coughs> hyper-segregation in the suburban schools. And then a, what I would describe as a secondary segregation, another level of segregation that's happening more silently between white middle, middle and upper class families and white working class and poorer families. Um, largely built around um, the fact that the, one of the other consequences of this pattern of suburbanization is going to be that there now becomes an incentive, I, and I often describe this to my students um, using MIT students like sort of calculations. And so um, I, I just do a, a quick calculation for them. A, a you know, 1% tax on houses that are worth a million dollars brings in more income revenue than a 10% tax on houses that are worth $40,000. And so another incentive that is created in this pattern of suburbanization is for wealthier families to actually exclude poorer families. So we exclude by race and we also exclude by class and one of the consequences is we end up with these really high performing school districts um, funded by the real estate tax <coughs> um, and a mechanism that we had early used, actually first created, to intending to create equality in the school system in the 19th century. It was just a way of incentivizing um, lo localities to build schools so that everyone had schools. By the 20th century, that me mechanism gets turned into or perverted into a way of actually creating hyper-inequality um, in, in public education. And so what do we have here? Um, what are the consequences in the big cities? And I'll conclude with this. The consequences are you, you have the rapid segregation of the public school system. But with that rapid segregation, a striking rise of unequal access to public education resources. This is girls' high school in 1948, right after, um, it's a few years after the end of World War II. And this is girls, and I should point out that the hair of these young women is actually not naturally that vibrant and bouncy. Um, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle actually went through and highlighted their hair. Um, for, and this is the actual photo from, that they used for the newspaper. And this is Girls High in 1963. Virtually all of the white students are gone. The overwhelming majority of the students are now African-American and Afro-Caribbean. And there's a small population of um, Puerto Rican students. Um, the school is operating probably about at about only 60% capacity because you can't get white students to come into Bedford-Stuyvesant by the 1960s to attend school. And this is what the Board of Education is making a decision about. What's stunning to me in the history of Girls High and Boys High, and I'll just use those two in conclusion, is that Girls High was actually successful in the early 1960s. The graduation rates were still high. Girls had actually adapted to 
its changing demographics. They had actually moved to diversify the faculty and some of the staff. They had mounted courses in Spanish. They had actually done study abroad to Puerto Rico. Um, they had mounted courses that were sort of precursors to what we would describe as African-American and Afro-Caribbean studies. Um, and they were graduating young women like Shirley Chisholm, the future congresswoman um, from Brooklyn. Boys High, in contrast, was a failed school, an absolute failure. Um, the graduation rates had plummeted. Um, it was overcrowded. Violence in the school had actually escalated. And by almost any reasonable measure, Boys was a failing high school. But public policy didn't actually reflect the realities of the two schools. In 1963, the Board of Education announced that they were going to close Girls High School. And they, the reason for closing it was that they couldn't integrate it. And so they redistributed. They closed in that year, the, uh, that, the school that year. And they distributed the remaining students to the other roughly two dozen academic high schools of New York. Most of them actually end up at Prospect Heights <coughs> High School. But they leave boys open. And boys stays open for another decade um, into the mid-1970s. And I use this in my History of New York class to point out something significant. By the 1960s, the idea of transferring 1,200 um, black and Latina girls to the other academic high schools was fundamentally different than the idea of transferring roughly 2,000 black teenage boys to the other academic schools. Boys High remains open despite the fact that by every measure it's a failed school. It remains open until the 1970s when the new Boys and Girls High is actually built. It's supposed to open in 1975. It opens in 1976. And I'll end the story where I began. When Boys and Girls High opens in 1976 on Fulton Street in Brooklyn, it's actually a failed school the day it opened. It was opened overcrowded. There were more students than there were spaces. They had actually not finished construction on the building. Some of the classrooms actually didn't have ceilings, furniture, windows. The heating system actually wasn't finished, and it opens in mid-year, so it opened actually in February. The school had been used, or the board, had actually transferred large numbers of students who had serious academic problems into the school. It was so overcrowded that they actually had to put them on a kind of half-schedule system, um, half-day system, so that students with academic problems actually didn't get a full academic experience um, in the classroom. And virtually by, again, every measure that one could use, um, the day that boys and girls opened, it had actually already fundamentally failed. When, as I've been writing about this recently, one of the things I pointed out, therefore, is that boys was a harbinger, boys and girls, of something that was happening across New York City by the 1970s. Large numbers of academic high schools and vocational schools that actually acted as warehouses for tens of thousands of black and Latino kids who were sent to those schools to wait out the period until they aged out of the educational system and no longer became the responsibility of the board. By the late 1970s, Boys High becomes notorious, boys and girls. Um, the United Federation of <coughs> Teachers will point to Boys and Girls High as, and I'm quoting, probably the worst school in urban America. It was one of the newest schools in New York, and already one of the worst schools in urban America. Thank you.